Hello and welcome to Talking Gardens. My guest this week is Tom Stewart-Smith, world-renowned landscape and garden designer, best known for his iconic Chelsea Flower Show gardens, as well as his projects at Chatsworth, RHS Bridgewater, the Hepworth Wakefield Trentham, and now the new Surge Hill project for gardening, creativity and health. So Tom, if you could construct a garden from all of the best things in the world, all of the amazing places you've seen and things that you've done and plants that you've grown, what would be the first thing that you would think, I have to have that in my dream garden? I'm, I'm unusual in a way that I've, that I've lived in pretty much the same place all my life. And I've been very lucky with that. I mean, a little bit of a silver spoon going on. I've always looked at that place and thought, actually, I don't really want to live anywhere else, which is an incredibly privileged thing to be able to say. So I'm not somebody who's, who's acquisitive in that way. I don't look at other places and say, however beautiful they are, I'd like to live here or I'd like to have that. So I'm going to give you a rather perverse answer. I'm not somebody who wants things or stuff or, or wants in a way more than I have. But that, and, that, and that's partly because I've been extremely fortunate in what I do have um, and what I've been able to make. So I'm, I'm going to say I don't, I, don't really want any, I don't really want anything. Of course, there are many, many things in my life that I've admired and have gone to make up my view of how to make places for other people. And to make places, uh, and to make the place that I live in, but I don't, I don't want them. I don't. I can live. I can live without them. And actually, you know, one of the other things about being a designer and traveling a lot and seeing other places is that it does, I think, make you less acquisitive because you're 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 doing this for other people in another place. So why have it for yourself? Because because it doesn't fit there, um, and you can go go and see it in another person's garden. You can try out these other things in other people's places, and so you don't have to do it yourself. And I mean, you do have such an absolutely beautiful garden yourself at the barn at Surge Hill. And you've started a new project there recently, which is very exciting. I believe it's the plant library and also that there's um, some other things going on there that are, you know, a big plans for the future. Yes, yes. I mean, the plant library is just a part of it and, and the bit that sort of got off the ground Earliest on, it's quite nice to be able to plant the garden before you build the build the building. I mean, the project comes out of Susan Mai's shared interest in gardens and the role they can have on people's lives. I think really, and we live we live in this place. I mean, it's compromised in some ways. You know, we're surrounded by motorways. We're, you know, we're in a part of the part of the countryside which which is maybe you could say not very loved and looked after. You know, a lot of people move through it more than stay there, but we are blessed with space. And we're in this strange situation where we don't have many people living around us at all. And yet within eight miles, there are 350,000 people living around us. So it's not exactly evenly spread. And we have felt for a long time that we wanted to, uh, you know, we wanted to sort of share the pleasures that we get out of landscape with uh, and gardens with other people. And this was very much sort of brought to a head by Sue writing her amazing book, The Well Garden Mind. And we decided we wanted to make a, I mean, the planning permission is as a horticultural resource center, whatever that is. It was pretty difficult to get planning for it because it's a, a building in the green belt. So you have to show something called very exceptional circumstances. And the idea is that we've built this big, big barn, this very beautiful, very sustainably constructed barn and that it's a place for sharing everything about the environment, about plants, about, about horticulture. So we will be able to have a whole classroom of 30, 40 kids there. 
where they can come for a day. They can learn about diff- you know how, how how different plants are. Our dream is that they can dig up some vegetables and make a meal. So we'll have a proper you know proper functioning commercial kitchen. We're not at the moment setting it up as a charity ourselves. We're setting it up as a what's called a community interest company. So it's a non-profit thing. Because we think there are lots of other amazing organizations that occupy this space and we want to help and facilitate their work rather than try and, you know, do what they do. And we think they they do that better than we do because they've had years of experience and we've had absolutely none, despite the fact that, you know, Sue is a, uh, is a psychotherapist, so she understands about that kind of thing. But she's she's not going to be there so much, you know, doing the hands-on work with with kids and so on. And then we've we've already got some really interesting things going. We have a great charity that's based in in Watford called Signpost, which is a youth counselling charity, and they have a plot. Last year they were there regularly, and then we're we're developing this great project with with Sunnyside, which is a charity which some people might have heard about, which is a a charity set up to help adults with autism and Asperger's mainly, but but with you know general I think we call it neurodiverse now, don't we? So they're they're very able adults generally. But they're quite difficult to um, incorporate within a conventional employment setting. But a lot of them are really, really good at horticulture, particularly they're very good at sort of repeat tasks. And with amazing Tony, uh, Toby Marchant and, and Chris, over the last couple of years, we've helped them set up a herbaceous plant nursery. And originally, we set that up at, at home, p- partly at home to, for a garden at, at Hampton Court in, in 2019, I think it was. And we're now reconstructing that and making that much better at home. And the idea is that we set up this idea of the plant library, which which came about really as a way of the, the, the initial stimulus for it was about teaching the guys, the guys who work for me about plants. And then thinking Your studio that we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was aware that a lot of a lot of people I employ are in their 20s, 30s, they live in London, they don't have a garden. And this seemed to be like a kind of like a, a sort of green ceiling on people's ability to really understand the the zone of what we do you know that that you can be really enthusiastic about about designing external space but unless you have contact with plants and are seeing them every day if you look at all the people who've done really well in our world they're all people who've who've had a Q training or a, maybe a Wisley training or they've gone to Dixter or they've had a really kind of full on gardening upbringing experience and a lot of people who go into landscape design, landscape architecture, don't have that. And you get to this time, you know, when you get a job, you're 25, how do you, how do you get that? You know, other than just sort of giving up and starting again. Yeah, that immersion. Exactly. Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to get that immersion. So I'm trying to do that. And so a lot of, um, a lot of, my, lot of my guys who work for me, they, I give them time every week to work in the garden. There there's, doesn't seem to be quite so much of that happening in, in the winter, but they go down there you know, most days, I would say, to have a look at plants, even in the depths of winter, to see how things are looking. So the idea is it's sort of a, an experimental sort of stock beds almost? Yes. And, and uh, a lot of, there are a lot of plants. There are about, there are, by this spring, there'll be about 1,200 different varieties of herbaceous plant, some of them quite well known, generally emphasis on species, not, not, not varieties. And the idea is also that we would share it more widely so that we're thinking we'll set up a sort of friends of the plant library so people who are interested, interested can come by a couple of times a week. They might other, meet other people who are there. They might be able to, you know, have seeds from the, the collection. They might be able to take divisions from it. You know, if they, if they maybe can have some sort of system where people can register for that. I think I see it as a way of bringing people together, you know, giving people information, 
I'm also very aware that that we're we're a very fragmented community as as designers. You know, you see this when you have these wonderful conferences. You know, some of which God's Illustrator have, have, have organised, like the Beth Chatto thing, where you really see this incredible sense of energy, and a lot of that comes from people who are actually quite isolated a lot of the time, working away in their, their small design practices or in gardens. And there aren't that many places where they can sort of come together and expect to meet other people and talk about whatever they want to talk about, you know, their terrible employment conditions or their or how much they love Amsonias or whatever. And I think maybe we maybe we can do a bit of that. And so have your employees so far found it really helpful to be able to see the life cycle of the yes. plants? And... Yeah, I think so, yeah. Absolutely. You know, things things that we 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 specify on planting plans are no longer abstract things that they can say, oh, yeah, I'll go and have a look at that one at lunchtime. And I think we're particularly interested in looking at how plants behave over a longer period of time. So we'll have a database which sort of maps their, their, how aggressive they are, what a long period of, of, of sort of looking good they are, how hardy they are over a long period of time. Maybe sort of trying to quantify some of these things which you don't tend to get. Off a off a website, you know. For instance, one thing I'm always wanting to know when I'm planting a plant, which is of wild origin, I want to know where it comes from and what it grows with in 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 its native habitat. How often do you find that? Almost never. And and yet that's such enormously important information to understand how you can use a plant in sort of associative planting design. I think it sounds like it's going to be a real game changer. I don't I don't know. What it's going to be. I mean, you know, it's it's something that we feel is lacking. I mean, I don't mean that there we're sort of filling a market niche or anything like that. We just feel that nobody else has done this and it seems like a great thing to do. And it's just sort of grown a bit organically and has now become a bit of an obsession. So, so like in September, I got into a, a van with James Hitchmo and, and Millie Suter, who runs the, the plant library at home. And we drove off to Holland and we just sort of went around all the you know, some of the really great nurseries like Essenhoff and, and Cohn Janssen's nursery and just and sort of just loaded the back of this van with about 3,000 plants. And then, you know, you can still find a way of getting plants back from, from Europe. It's, it's, it's complicated. You have to find an importer. But the truth of the matter is there are lots of interesting plants in Europe which are not, you know, so available over here. And uh, go, going over there and having a look is really, really interesting. You know, going to somewhere like R- Rhinebeek, you know, this huge shockingly huge herbaceous plant nursery and finding out how they produce their stuff and the varieties that they're growing and their their sort of research program. It's very, very interesting. Nobody does that quite on on that scale over here. And I was just interviewing the UK chief plant health officer. Oh, yeah. And um, she wouldn't be very happy to hear you saying about bringing stuff back. But I think as long as you have the phytosanitary certificates yes. oh, and all no, the that's documentation, all, that's all then, it know, makes it cumbersome and it makes it expensive. Yeah. But it's no different to what all the commercial nurseries are doing. You know, I mean, don't pretend that, that all our domestic consumption of plants is, is grown domestically. It's not. Mm-hmm. I, you just have to be responsible and do it properly. So, I mean, yes, when I posted something on Instagram about, about going on a shopping trip in, in Holland, there were lots of sort of raised eyebrows, like, you know, assuming I was breaking the law in some way. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, you, just have to be, you just have to be pretty organized about it. So when people come to see the plant library, they might find some really interesting plants yes, that they're they not familiar do, yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I mean, you know, you've painted such a picture. I think it sounds like an amazing resource, but I know because I've seen that it's actually really beautiful as well. So it's no wonder that you find it quite difficult to imagine a dream garden when you already live in such a lovely place. Well, you know, in a way, I mean, the, the plant library is is part of my dream garden because, because I am quite geeky about plants. 
I love collecting plants, but I do not want generally a garden which is a stamp collection. But yet I love collecting plants. So how do you resolve that? And this is an amazing way of resolving this. You, you, so you have this collection, which is in a completely different part of the garden, which is completely enthralling. Most of the plants that are in there, I don't have in the main garden. And I've, and I've no desire to have most of them in the main garden. And um, are there any other plans afoot for after the, you know, the plant library and the different charities that you mentioned having plots on site? Uh, are there any other plans for the future for that area? I think we, we have to see how it, how it goes. I mean, I think that we, we see it as being a place where we can have, we can have seminars, meetings. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a big resource. And we've invested far too much of our money and money, you know, borrowed money to do it. So we've got to make it happen. I mean, I'm not wanting to make it necessarily into sort of profitable business, but just something that does wash its face. I think that what we're going to do is, is, is grow it quite organically. You know, see, we're going to work with people, see what enthusiasms they have. It's n- not really perhaps too clever to impose a too rigid a program on something and then try and make the people get the people to fit it. It's almost that you, you, you find the people who you really like, who you think have got great ideas, and you say, well, you know, what, do you, what would you like to do? A, a bit more that way around, I think. Well, we won't phrase it quite like saying, what would your fantasy garden contain? <laughs> yes. But maybe we could talk about some gardens, landscapes, people who have influenced you, or that, you know, if you could, you would like to have a little piece of them in your space, in yes. your garden. Is there, is there any place that you can think of that you think, mm, there's something about that, that, you know, not that you want to acquire it, but that, you know, you feel it would be nice to have that around? I mean, I think this is once getting back into sort of memory, uh, memory territory. And so I can tell you about places that I saw which had a profound impact on me. I mean, I could, one place which really did expand my mind about what gardening could be was, I was very lucky when I was about 24, I think. So, you know, we're going back a long way. This is, this is, I'm 62 now. So, yeah, do the math. I got to know Jim Russell a bit. Not, not a name that trips off a lot of people's tongues now, but he was um, one of the great plantsmen of the middle of the last century, up until the sort of 80s. And he created the Yorkshire Arboretum, which, which um, John Grimshaw now runs amazingly. And he did a lot of work at Castle Howard. And, and, and one of the most remarkable things he did, well, he did the uh, rose garden there, but he also did the replanting of Ray Wood, which was this 18th century woodland, key part of the sort of aesthetic strategy of, of Castle Howard as a heroic landscape in the early 18th century. But it was replanted a lot with rhododendrons, but with you know species of wild rose, generally species things, a lot of which he'd collected in the wild. And I remember go, being being shown round there by him. I mean, it was it was scenically extraordinary, and it was on such a generous scale. You know, there was never I felt there was never my impression anyway was that the things were not planted just because they were rare and extraordinary. They were planted with a real painter's eye. And I remember coming into a glade which was carpeted with Hesperus. So we're we're talking end of May, I suppose. And there was roses that just started coming to flower. And there was a, a grey-leaved rose, Rosa Suliana. And there was one draped over a tree. And there was another one about sort of 30 yards away, which was a sort of great big shrub. And then there's another one which was, which was more prostrate. And I was a bit baffled by this. 
And it was the first time I, I was kind of aware that a Latin name is just a sort of catch-all for, for a whole range of things. And these were all Rosa Suliena from different parts of their, their geographical range, and they were just completely different plants. And so to describe, you know, Rosa Suliena as a large shrub for the wild garden was ridiculous because it was also a climber or, you know, depending where, you, where it came from. So that was one of those moments, you know, one of the first moments of, of, of many, you know, they happen just about every day when you realize that one of the most amazing things about this job is that however much you know, you know so little. And everybody who, you know, I mean, even the Roy Lancasters and the, and the Tony Kirkhams and the, <laughs> the, the know-it-alls of this world would, would say the same, you know, because there's just, it's just so much more of it coming. And, and that's one of the joys of, of working in different parts of the world as well. That you, that, I mean, I've just started working in India again. I mean, I've worked in southern India, but I'm now working in the north. And one of the reasons for doing this was to encounter a different culture and a whole different range of materials, whether they're you know, building materials, but also particularly plant, plant materials. I and mean, that's just so interesting to, to be able to descend into, into another world. Can you tell us what you're doing in India? I'm doing some work in Ahmedabad. So, so it's, it's gardens in the city, new build houses, or one, one, older, one older house. One is with an architect we've, we've worked with quite a bit over the last uh, 10 years called B. Joy Jane, Studio Mumbai, who's, who's somebody who's had a big influence on my working life. I mean, a really remarkable, remarkable architect. When I first started working with him, he had a, a studio. Actually, most of the people who worked with him were students. But he had a team of of about eighty carpenters and about and about I think about fifty stonemasons. And when they worked on a job, they would go and live effectively go and live there, and they would they would make they would just make the house, make the building, and they would generally use materials from often from site. Uh, one job we did, you know, they they made all the bricks from the ground that came, you know, the the, the house was built on. One house, you know, all the Brisole was made out of beetle nut trees, just sliced into into intersections. But these are very, very sophisticated, very beautiful houses, which nevertheless are deeply sort of in touch with the earth and with the with the level of the ground and with plants. You know, they're always set out on the ground, set out amongst the tree, the existing trees. Almost never remove. I mean, never remove a significant tree. Almost, you know, often don't remove small trees either. They, they would be allowed to grow out of different parts. This this was a big a big lesson for me that this could be done. You know, that you, you, our approach far too much in in this country is to is to be terribly risk averse about trees. Oh, it might fall on the building. You know, it might cause a lot of trouble. I always say to people, I think it's one of the greatest privileges of, of, of life to be able to live close to a tree, to be able to sort of touch it and, and to look out and, be, and, 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 and for it to be something, you know, that you share your life with. But for many people, you know, oh, no, we want it at least 25 yards away from the house. This, this is sad. And when you go to India, I mean, uh, I assume that you have to do a lot of new research about plants that you would use and everything. Do you sort of collaborate with the yes. people who are there? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So we're working with a, a garden designer based in Ahmedabad who's got very good plant knowledge. Um, one, the, the, on the first visit, we went to look at nurseries to see what, they've, what they're growing. And there are neem trees and frangipanis, but there's a lot of stuff which, which you know, are sort of native, are native trees which you wouldn't have come across before. I mean, it was very interesting to me working in Kerala, which is a fascinating state. It's a communist country and one of the highest literacy rates in the world. Highly educated people, 
very, very intensively farmed. There's no such thing as a garden, really. It's a farm. And if you have a tree in your garden that is not a productive tree, people look at it rather dismissively and wave their hand and say, oh, weed tree, weed tree, get rid of it. And you're looking at these, some of these trees, which are really, really beautiful. And you're saying, you're saying well, I, I think that's actually quite a nice tree to keep. And there's a real cultural prejudice against that. You know, you don't, you don't have trees just because they look nice. Trees must, be, must have a, a, a productive virtue to them. And that's a rather wonderful sort of culture to be working in, something that is so alien to us, isn't it? You know, we're, and it makes you feel really quite decadent. <laughs> to be in ornamental mode. Yeah, yeah ornamental <laughs> mode, yeah, yeah. When you were talking about uh, your appreciation for the architect's work, it made me think of the garden that you did in Morocco, the secret garden, mm. and how you use local craftspeople there as well. Is that really important to you to get that level of detail and that kind of essential local knowledge? I, th- I think that... If you're going to work in a um, in another culture in another place, of course you're bringing a foreign sensibility to it. But I think the thing that can be interesting, perhaps, is is that you can look at the at the way that the gardening culture of a different place is very different from ours, and kind of and kind of articulate the essentials of it. So yes, I mean I was very privileged on that project to be, other than the, the two Italian owners, to be the only non-Moroccan working on that. While I wasn't responsible for the sort of detailed design of the tile work and so on, I would have found it very difficult if, if the decision had been made not to work within the Moroccan tradition because the thing that was so extraordinary about that site was that it was this, this relict, you know, Sardin dynasty garden, so, so 17th century, 16th, 17th century, and maybe even before and then this remarkable garden that had developed in the in the end of the 19th century and early 20th century when when it became the garden of one of the main bureaucrat officials in the city a very very powerful man who was the chancellor to the last sultan and it was really important for the city that that there was that there was this garden which did show something very particular about the traditions of gardening in morocco because there wasn't really another place where that was the case and even though we've made We've done some things there in the planting, I would say, not, not in the architecture, that are non-traditional, that, that wouldn't have been recognized by somebody in Marrakesh 100 years ago. Broadly speaking, it's very, very, it's very, I mean, you can describe on the back of a fag packet in two sentences what you'd need to take away to get back to something that is absolutely authentic and recognizable by, some, by, by Lucrece, the man who had it before. And was there anywhere in particular, like uh, Islamic garden design or Islamic um, architecture, that sort of helped inspire you as you were starting to make that garden? Well, the, I'm, I'm very sad that I've never been. I've never been to Iran, but I mean, of, of, but in fact, the, the the traditions of the Islamic garden are are so varied all over the Islamic world, and the the traditions of, of Morocco are closest to those of southern Spain. So, of course, I've I've been to the Alhambra and the Generalife, although quite a long time ago. I think most of it was actually because perhaps the, the one exception to the rule that there are virtually no Islamic gardens planted in the way that they should be or are recognizable is, is the one exception to this is, is Babur's garden in Kabul, possibly. But that's not an easy place to visit. I mean, I'd love to do it because it's been restored by the Aga Khan Foundation in the last 10 years. And has become, you know, even during the war there, had become this incredible kind of refuge for the people of Kabul, um, that, that it would be the, the place to go and, and feel safe. 
and I've not I've not been there. I mean, that would be a wonderful place to to, to visit. So that there aren't places where you can go and and see how these gardens were planted. You can go and see how the the structure of them was, and there and there are several there are several gardens in Marrakesh which which show you that. You know, the Albadi Palace has has all the mosaics and the and the and the the sequence of spaces and so on. And I had a, had a look at those. And in fact, the first iteration of of the plan that we had for the for the Marrakesh Garden, we didn't have any archaeological evidence for one of the two big spaces. And I concocted something which I, I now look back with a certain amount of embarrassment. I mean, it was a bit of a placeholder, but it was based on a design for a for a garden of a similar size in Meknes in the nineteenth century, and it was also actually very very similar to a garden um, in the Amarfort in India. Which is a not a, even an Islamic garden; it's a Rajput garden, but has some of that same character. And I was taken up by how you know, extraordinary it was that there could be this sort of typology that extended from India to Morocco. But actually, then when we started to do the archaeology, we did find we found it all. You know, the, the, the layout of the old garden underneath, so we could chuck the placeholder in the bin, thank heavens, and and adapt to to, to what we found. Well, that's your inspiration from the past. Is there anything going on in sort of horticulture or design now that you find really inspiring, you know, new technologies or new ways of doing things that you think, wow, that's really interesting. I might like to have a go Gosh. at that. I mean, I think, I think the thing that sort of I'm working with a bit and I think is so interesting, I mean, I think Peter Korn's work is, I've not been to see him yet, but I've met him. He came to see the plant library last year. We had a really good chat. I mean, what a what a individual! This is Swedish yeah, the nurseryman Swedish, who, Swedish who, who famously grows, grows in everything sand. on sand. Yeah. <laughs> so, so actually, the plant library, you know, the, the dry the dry plants there, we grow on six inches of sand. He would say that's not nearly enough. And I think I probably agree with him for for a lot of the very very you know Mediterranean plants. You, there is no limit to the amount of sand that you want to grow them in. I mean, probably a foot would be better. Wow. I think that the whole thing of growing on low nutrient. Bases the and and I think um, all the all the stuff to do with soil. I'm very proud that that um, Henrietta Courtauld used to work for me, even only part time. You know the land gardeners, and I think the work they're doing is 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 wonderful. All all the, the the way that soil science is now becoming such an essential part of our of our work. You know, like we we did this project at Chatsworth where where we planted. I mean, it's something crazy, like two hundred thousand perennials over five six years. And we, other than for shrubs, you know, we n- never really dug a hole. So, so we, we, you know, we put a layer of, of mulch on the top and then planted into that. Because the soil is so intractable, because, you know, as soon as you start cultivating it, you're, you're, you're messing up the drainage, the soil mycorrhizae. So it's just better to, where you can, to do things on top. And, and to, did and to everything the take alone. with that approach? What? Did you have many yes, losses? Yes, I mean, I would say the things that have been difficult have been the, the kind of touchy things. So green waste from Sheffield is not the ideal thing to grow trilliums and sanguinarias and uvularias. You know, some of these quite little choice woodlanders who are used to growing in very, very, you know, that irritating thing the RHS always put on their website. What's it? What's it um, good, moist so, uh, sort of soil or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, um, moist, well drained. Well, moist, well, that's exactly it. Moist, well drained. <laughs> You're thinking, Who has what? moist, yeah. well drained soil? <laughs> I mean, nobody has moist. But these woodlands, that's what they do grow in. And green waste tends to, tends to be a little bit soggy in winter and a little bit too dry in summer. So some things don't like it. And I think sometimes it's got a bit of an unhealthy pH balance for some of these woodland things, a little bit too, little bit too high. 
I would say that was the area where we where it wasn't so successful. But but generally, I mean, uh, uh, the, the problem the problem was with the speed of growth. So, for instance, in one glade, we had this idea that we would plant everything, and then we'd over sow with violas and primulas. I mean, nothing too fancy, just 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 primroses and viola Labrador, labradorica to create a sort of matrix. Spring carpet. Yeah, yeah, spring carpet, exactly. By the end of the first year, the primroses looked like, like savoy cabbages because there was this residual fertility in, in the, and it was just mad. So we, we, we were sowing them in amongst things like, you know, Aris sibirica. The Aris plants were not that strong. So at the end of the first year, you'd have this sort of mass of cabbages with, with these spindly little bits of Aris coming out of it. Yeah, it was, was not really quite worrying. <laughs> but there you are again, you know, you're learning. So now... I would have delayed that over sowing for a year to get all the herbaceous, you know, plants that you really want established and then over sow. So, you, you know, you just learn the whole time, don't you, about better ways of doing things. Is that advice that you might give to young designers out there now and young plants people just, you have to try things to learn for yourself? I think you do. I mean, I came unstuck once a long time ago. I mean, nearly, I mean, 18, 20 years ago now, experimenting at, at the wrong person's in the wrong person's garden. And it, it ended up being quite difficult, you know, because they were not an understanding person. And I probably hadn't explained to them exactly what we were doing. And we were doing, you know, a lot of the seeding work and stuff. And it, it ended up, it ended not, not terribly well and, and caused me a, an enormous amount of stress. And as a result, I ended up, you know, damaging my back and and that's become a lifelong problem you know because of, because you do something like that and it and it has repercussions that go with you mm. and that really was a lesson to me that that you know if you're going to experiment at somebody else's expense you've got to take them along with you you know yeah you need an understanding yeah client. you need an understanding client and you need to you need to tell them you know what the possible downside could be so the best client is someone who's willing to take chances, maybe. Yes, I think a bit. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, yeah. it makes me think of your um, work at NEP, uh, where yeah, yeah. Um, Isabel Tree, of course, is, you know, with their rewilding project that's so famous. I think you must have known going into that, well, at least they're kind of open to these ideas. Well, you don't know, do you? Because some people may be very open. And I mean, I knew that they were very open people, but I didn't know whether they would be necessarily where we would end up. And what was great about there was that we had a kind of scientific committee. So we had, you know, Charlie and Izzy, obviously. Charlie you know, Harper. Char- no, uh, no Char- Charlie Burrell. Oh, I'm sorry. So Char- Charlie Harper came in, got involved later. Later at that stage, he was working for me and actually not working on the project um, because he was setting up the plant library at, at, at home and, and working on other things. So we had James Hitchmo. And we had Mick Crawley. Now he's somebody a lot, lot of people in the horticultural world don't know about. And professor they, of ecology, and they jolly is that right? well should know about him. Yeah, yeah, he's a professor of ecology. Is that right? At, at, at um, Imperial at Silverwood. So one of his big projects. I, I, I'm not quite sure if it's called Flora Londonensis, but it's basically revisiting Curtis's. It's revisiting the whole flora around London. So when I first met him, he sort of quizzed me about where I live. I said, Oh, I live near Bedmond. He said, Okay, where near Bedmond? And I said, Well, down Sir Hill Lane. And he said, Oh, where? And he sort of said, oh, well, yes, there's that clump of white violas in the hedgerow, hedgerow isn't there? You know, I've been watching that. He was watching um, a clump of flowers. Well, I mean, you know, he, he just, dish. he's just, yeah. they, uh, Nep, um, Charlie Burrell calls him God because, <laughs> because he's just, he is a walking thesaurus, unlike 
yeah, unlike anybody I've I've come across before. And so, for instance, when we were working at Bridgewater, so he's a trust. He was a trustee of the RHS. When I started working at Bridgewater, he did the the survey of all the plants that were growing there initially. So he would walk through the woodland and look at the hairs on the back of sedges. You know, it's, it's that level of. So we started off really from the question of how do you turn a garden which has a flat croaky lawn and a swimming pool into something that is extraordinarily biodiverse? What do you have to do to it? And of course, the, you know, the two principal things were it cannot be flat. And it's got to have a whole range of soil conditions. And particularly if, you, if you're looking for floral biodiversity, which is a big driver of, of sort of a formal biodiversity, then you've got to have areas with much, much reduced fertility. And you've got to decide how to do that. And so one of the big answers to that was that there was a, um, they had a, a farm project, which they were embarking on, which involved taking out a huge amount of, of old concrete hard standings. So there was about, I think, something like 300 cubic meters of concrete, crushed concrete going spare. We had, a um, through James's research, we had a little bit of nervousness about crushed concrete on its own because it can tend to re-aggregate, you know, to sort of re-concretize, if that's a word. So we used quite a lot of, of, of sand to mix up with that to sort of give it a more open texture. And that, for much of the garden, is the planting medium. So there's this crazy ridge, which is sort of the Hitchmo Ridge, which, which has about, I mean, over a foot of this stuff on it, you know, with, with things like agaves and, you know, that kind of extreme stuff, gazanias and stuff planted into it which have been fine through this this winter which has been a pretty you know if you want to if you want a winter to to the test stuff is, this is yeah. the, this is you know first of all you give it 10 degrees of frost for for a week and then you just shit put shitloads of water all over it you know that is the way to kill things yeah and and, and that's and that's after the drought last year that's after the drought the drought the drought last year was fine yeah uh, we overestimate how much water a lot of things need you know, think a lot of a lot of Mediterranean plants. They just go into hibernation. They don't actually die. They just shut down a bit. Summer dormancy, yeah, like you yeah. know, you see in other Mediterranean climate exactly. zones. So in that incredible summer last year, we most of this stuff was planted in April. We did, I think Charlie did two waterings. So the the the, the approach was really, you know, treat them hard. Yeah, just so you, establish you them want, with the minimum of water. Absolutely, you don't want everything to put a lot, lot of lot of you know fleshy green growth on. And I think this winter, yeah, some things of, of sort of fleshy green things, euphorbias, you know, things like euphorbia serratocarpa, probably taken back to the ground. But I mean, I, I'd be very surprised if it doesn't come again. It's generally the things that have been growing in the richer soil, you know, that we that, that things like euphorbia pasteurized, for instance, which looks, I mean, my garden at the moment, my garden is a sort of euphorbia pasteurized graveyard at the moment. <laughs> it, is, it is quite depressing. Oh, no. Yeah. Do you know what you might have to replace them with? Oh, I think they probably might come back. Yeah. Yeah, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for green shoots of recovery, um, yeah. which does mean that it looks terrible for another, you know, another six weeks or something. And then and then you cut back to where, the, where they're shooting from. Yeah. Is there anywhere that you have seen or visited, a bit like my question about the plant library or that young designers, young plants people, people, you know, changing career maybe as well, who are coming into the horticultural industry... Have to go and see. Yes, that yeah. you you just think uh, you have to go and see this place. Well, everybody knows about this place. I mean, Hessenhoff, Hermannshof, not Hessenhoff. We should go to Hessenhoff as well. You know, it's extraordinary. So Hessenhoff is nursery. <laughs> Hessenhoff is the wonderful nursery. <laughs> yeah, seventy-five varieties of phlox just to sort of get you going. This amazing man called Hans Kramer who who runs it. 
Uh, Johnny Bruce worked there for some time, and you know I think I learned an incredible amount. I think I think it's a. I mean, there are astonishing plants there. The nursery is so beautifully laid out. Probably fifteen varieties of Actea, Simicifuga. You start kind of hyperventilating before you're even across the threshold. And that, nurseryman that Hans Kramer. Hans Kramer. Yeah. That's right, and he, he breeds baptisias as well, I believe. Yes, he's. There are a lot of baptisias there. Does he does he breed baptisias? I, that one escaped me. Uh, there are a lot of people in Holland and the States breeding baptisias at the moment, and they have a lot of them sort of you know brown and with purple stripes. And <laughs> um, I meant to say I meant to say Hermanshof. Um, because I think that because I think that Cassian Schmidt is perhaps the leading plantsman of the day, particularly in terms of herbaceous plants and their their origins, their understanding. This is Hermann Schaffer Garden in Germany, in, in Weinheim. Yeah, yeah. I know for for even for you know for Pete, the great Pete Adolf, I, I went there once with him. Uh, he learned a lot from that. Everybody learns a lot from it. It's a beautiful garden, but it's also a demonstration garden. It's so. Beautifully laid out, and 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 you learn so much from it. I think I've learned more from that garden. I mean, I've only been there three times, I think, but I've learned more from my visits to Hermanshof than I have about plants and how to use them than I have probably from any other single garden. I mean, Cassian does a lot of experimental things there as yes. well, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah He's absolutely. Sort of yeah. All about seeing what will work, a bit like James H. Mo and yeah. Nigel done it on those kind of uh, low maintenance, large scale public. And it's so systematic, schemes. you know, in that German way, yeah. which makes us feel sort of, oh no, God, we just can't do that. Um, but you're very grateful that somebody can, you know. If you were to choose something that you would never allow in your garden, that we could all just do without, you would burn on the garden fire, throw on the compost heap. What would that be? Well, I wouldn't burn it, put, put it on the fire and I wouldn't put it on the compost heap, but I would not have plastic in any shape or form. I love that bit in The Graduate where the, is it his uncle takes him on one side and sort of is giving him some career advice. And he says, look here, son, I've got to tell you something. The future is plastic. And it's on the great lines in cinema. But, or, or tells him, you know, he's got to get into plastics. But, oh, God, you know, it's just a metaphor for everything that's awful about our consuming world, isn't it? And, and pots that come in plastic. I hope that we can see the back of that in the next 10 years. Little plastic ties, little plastic labels. You know, yeah, I always find plastic labels in the compost heap. And it depresses me, you know, that the, the writing is as clear as ever, sort of 20 years after the, the plant that it related to has <laughs> long disappeared. Um, so I would love to think that that we could look forward to a garden where where little bits of plastic turning up was a thing of the past. And if there were three things, very quick fire, that you felt every garden should have, that you would have to have in your garden, what would they be? One is that I think a garden should have a sense of calm. So I I, I would describe that as a sense of simplicity. That, that it's not overworked, that, that that maxim, if in doubt, leave it out. So that there is, a, there is somewhere in this garden which has an overriding sense of calm and because we all need a refuge in, in this life. But then as a counterpoint to that, I always want a garden which also has complexity in it, that has, you know, 40 species or 80 species of herb growing in a, in a, in a meadow, that has 20 varieties of butterfly. I mean, of course, we can't all, you know, have this, but, but something which engenders unpredictability, change, that, 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 that we all love that thing in the garden, don't we? That, that oh, gosh, I hadn't known that that, that was happening. This world of little surprises. And, and if things are too homogenous and too monocultural and too controlled, 
then you're going to you're going to squash that all out. The third thing I'd want in a garden. Do you know, I think I'd be pretty happy with just those two because everything sort of everything kind of follows from from them. If you could have those two elements in a garden. I mean, I could say something like, you know, I would always want some element of water in a garden. But I I survived without water in my own garden for about 15 years and it didn't kill me. So <laughs> That was Tom Stewart-Smith, designer and creator of the Surge Hill Project. Thank you for listening to Talking Gardens, brought to you by the team behind Gardens Illustrated. You can find more great stuff about gardens and plants in our magazine and at gardensillustrated.com. Until next time.